Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Jonathan Haidt, the co-author with Greg Lukianoff of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Haidt is a social psychologist who teaches at NYU's business school, and he examines, along with his co-author, what they consider to be a crisis on college campuses, with some forms of identity politics running rampant and with students unable or unwilling to listen to different viewpoints, especially conservative ones. The book examines why the authors think kids today are so coddled and what impact that coddling might have for society at large. They also widen the picture to include an analysis of how different versions of identity politics are likely to play politically when taken up by politicians and public figures. Jonathan Haidt joins me now right across the bay in San Francisco. John, how are you? Fine, thanks, Isaac. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, doing this. So I guess I want to start. What do you think is happening on college campuses today that is particularly unique or different? And uh, why do you think it's happening? Uh, so uh, what, what Greg and I think is happening is a kind of a subtle change in the dynamics um, that has far-reaching effects, but it's not that a generation has lost its mind or a generation has turned against free speech. So uh, we try to avoid using the word crisis or we don't talk about snowflakes. Um, it's really a clash of moralities um, in the, it, it, with the goal of being more inclusive and welcoming. Um, some students have become much more sensitive to the use of words uh, and, and the presence of ideas and speakers. So it's not that students are turning against free speech. It's that they're now conflicting goals on campus, and it's leading to a call-out culture, a culture in which some students feel that they can uh, criticize or even shame uh, people who say things um, that they deem offensive. And this has led to more, just more fearfulness among both students and professors. The, do you think that this is sort of intimately connected to what's going on in our politics? Or do you think that this was something that was starting before uh, the last three years and has kind of been, um, I guess, in some senses, understandably, maybe in some senses, not understandably kind of exacerbated by it? Oh, it is definitely exacerbated by the current political situation. So, the, I mean, the way we think about it in the book is that the, there's this surprising change that begins to happen around 2014. This is when the New York Times and the New Republic start writing the first articles about trigger warnings. Uh, this is when we see the first references to uh, students at Brown and other places wanting safe spaces in their classrooms. So something was changing around 2014 that Greg noticed first. Greg Lukianoff is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Um, he noticed that while, of course, students have been politically active for a long time, for the first time around 2014, they were saying not this is offensive or this is racist or this is unjust or this needs to be stopped, but this is harmful. This will traumatize some students. This will damage some students. And that's it was the medicalization. Uh, that's what caught Greg's eye. And that's what made him notice that the students, some of the students, were using the exact cognitive distortions that Greg had learned not to use when he learned cognitive behavioral therapy, things like catastrophizing, discounting the positive, things like that. So that's what's new. You talk about three ideas in your book which you think are harmful. Um, that Those three ideas are what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, life is a battle between mm -hmm. good and evil, and trust your feelings. What's wrong with each of these? So my first book was called The Happiness Hypothesis, and it looked at 10 ancient ideas, uh, and it looked at the psychology behind them. So the first one, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Um, obviously, your listeners will recognize that as a perversion, an inversion of Friedrich Nietzsche's dictum, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. 
And that has a very good psychology behind it, the psychology of anti-fragility, um, that, that term coined by Nassim Taleb. So like our immune systems are not fragile, they're not damaged by being exposed to bacteria, they actually require it. And if you shelter your kids from dirt and germs, then the immune system doesn't have a chance to get strong. And Taleb argued, as, as sages East and West, including Mencius and, and Marcus Aurelius and many others, um, is that people need adversity, they need exposure to things that are uncomfortable in order to learn how to deal with them. Uh, so we think that's deeply true and right. And to the extent that Americans uh, began overprotecting their kids a lot more in the 1980s and 90s, uh, we think that has led to, it's at least a contributor to the the very rapid rise in levels of anxiety and depression after around 2011. Um, And what about life as a battle between good and evil? Oh, well, that's the the ancient uh, idea of Manichaeism, uh, which was at the heart of my second book, The Righteous Mind. Uh, The subtitle of that book was Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And that's what most of my work is on, is how we evolved to be tribal creatures who dance around campfires and worship rocks and trees and then get ready to battle other groups. Uh, We're really good at that. And if you want to create a tolerant, diverse, modern, democratic society— you have to turn down the tribalism. And the best way to do that is to have a strong um, overarching identity, a shared identity. Uh, and so that um, on a college campus where we're all really trying to, to enhance diversity and make it work for us, uh, to play up differences first, uh, we think is, is a bad idea. And so that's what we, we study in chapter three of the book. So have you seen, I mean, I, I followed kind of a lengthy back and forth that you've had online with some, some other academics about um, survey data about college students being less less supportive or not less supportive of free speech than other Americans or Americans who don't attend college or older Americans. And you write about iGen, which I guess is people who are age 18 to 24 now. Is that correct? It's, it's kids born after 1995. Yes. 1995. Okay. So uh, you write that they're a little less tolerant, but you also write the skeptics are also right that the data don't show a sudden giant change. We do not have a lost generation. Young people have not suddenly turned against free speech in su- such numbers that we see cliffs in the data. I've looked through a ton of the data trying to get ready for this interview, and I, I you know, I'm trying to make out trends and sort of what what I see and tell me if you agree is that on racial matters, millennials or people in the iGen generation seem to be more sensitive, thinking that people who say things that are racially offensive should be banned from speaking. But then there are other issues like whether, you know, professional athletes should be able to express political opinions or uh, the president should have the authority to close down news outlets or thing building mosques, things like this, which we consider kind of First Amendment things, um, where, in fact, this generation is more tolerant. And so it's hard to kind of come up with one big takeaway. What, what, what have you found? Yeah. So um, just to give a little bit of context, it, the debate was started when a political scientist in Canada named Jeff Sachs um, analyzed some uh, data from the General Social Survey. Um, uh, a political scientist named Justin Murphy had done so uh, just before then. And he pointed out that you don't see a big change in attitudes about free speech in questions going back to the 70s. And it was a wonderful debate. It was really a a great example of why it is that we need critics. We need people to test our assumptions and push back. And what came about 
uh, as a result of the debate was, I think, a general consensus that it's not that a generation is turned against free speech. It's that there's now a clash of moral values. And as you said, it's the issues on campus, a lot of it has to do with diversity and inclusion. That's what this generation was really raised with. Um, so I don't talk a lot about about free speech in the abstract. I talk about what are the sacred values of any group. And around the sacred values, you'll often find a ring of ignorance and intolerance. So on a college campus, if some, there are many subgroups, if some subgroups act like, well, this is our sacred value and we will not allow anyone on campus who questions it, well, that that's kind of illiberal. That's kind of, it makes life difficult for the rest of the university. And if it was you know, someone coming onto campus to spout racial slurs, well, of course, there'd be a lot of consensus to keep them off. But when it extends to people presenting data or ideas or a professor you know, questioning the, questioning the gender gap in pay, um, things that should be debatable, if people get upset and say this is not permissible, well, it, it, that chills academic discourse. Absolutely. I, I guess what I'm wondering is, I, I'm, you know, you're not you're not trying to say the sky is falling, but your book is also right. um, subtitled How Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. You start one chapter talking about the Cultural Revolution in China and about yeah. mm-hmm. kind of things that are, you know, getting to a place where things that are not allowed to be said. So clearly you think, though, that something may be changing or we may be in a place to say we're setting up a generation for fa- for failure. I assume you don't think previous generations are failure. So I, I guess what I'm wondering right. is what is it about this generation when you look at this data that sticks out? We we don't have really good uh, national data on on the attitudes and behaviors of kids born after 1995. Um, so on all sides of this, we're trying to figure out what's going on. But the place where we have really good data, and the reason why we do think that there is a, a danger of something fairly big, is that the rates of depression and anxiety have gone up very substantially for boys. Um, they're up 25%, um, well, 25 to 50%, uh, depending on what you're measuring. The suicide rate for boys is up 25% between the first decade of this century and the last few years. It began rising around 2010, 2011, um, and it's much higher now than it was. That's 25% for boys. For girls, it's 70%, increase in suicide for teenage girls. So something is going very badly wrong. It's especially affecting girls. Um, there are many more people on campus, and this is across social class and across race. There are many more people on campus um, who are prone to depression and anxiety. And so we think that if, if we are trying to accommodate them by telling them, you're fragile, you're vulnerable, we will protect you from books, speakers that, that you think are threatening, we will protect you. This is the worst thing we could do. This is exactly what you should not be doing. Um, a college campus is a very, very safe place for people to encounter books, ideas, and speakers. There's really no physical violence uh, related, to, related to ideas. Um, and so we think that with good intentions, we're teaching students on many campuses um, uh, the sorts of things that any good therapist would say we should be teaching the opposite. More from my guest right after the break. Let me read you uh, the Washington Post. There was a review of your book, and I think it, it, it got at some of these issues from a slightly different perspective. They say that you guys do an excellent job of reminding readers that assumptions of fragility can be disempowering. But are students today disempowered because they've been convinced they are fragile, or do they feel vulnerable because they are facing problems like climate change and massive nasty inequality? Is the parenting style among middle-class families really paranoid, or are parents recognizing that the middle class is being eroded by economic policies that steer more and more wealth to fewer and fewer people? Are historically 
historically marginalized groups feeling absurdly risk averse or are they appropriately wary of an American population that can be energized by powerful, overtly racist demagogues willing to engage in abusive scapegoating? What's your response to to that sort of counter Mm -hmm. to some of the stuff you're saying? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I've I've heard this heard this a lot and it makes sense to think, you know, it, it's a good idea to put yourself in the shoes of people you're trying to understand and ask how does the world look to them? And of course we can see uh, all kinds of threats that this generation will have to deal with. But as soon as you do it for every previous generation, you, you see the same thing. So, um you know, I was born in 1963, uh, the very last year or so of the baby boom. Um and you know, we were really afraid of nuclear war. I mean, there was a real chance that all of life would end. Um, fluctuations in the economy, uh, um, all sorts of things like this, even war, tends not to affect the happiness of people, especially children, very much. I don't think that it's, it's, it's things in the news. It's, it's things much more local. And so while the reality of, of increased safety and increased longevity and dropping crime and improved norms, um, even about racism, obviously the last couple of years are very different. Things have, have changed the last two or three years. But this problem began around 2014. Um, and I think what we need to focus on is not objective facts about the economy, which was actually improving then. It's subjective facts about what it's like to grow up um, in the internet age, where there will always be racist and sexist comments on every YouTube video. I mean, it's horrible to see the stuff that is, whenever you deal with strangers on the internet, a lot of ugly stuff comes out. And so the question is, how should we be preparing kids, especially kids from historically marginalized groups? How should we be preparing them? Should we be trying to sweep their immediate environment as clean as possible, even from microaggressions, knowing full well that they will be going on the internet where there's really nasty stuff? I think that's what we've been doing. And I think this is, again, in many ways, we're doing the opposite of what we should. Well, I, I don't mean the opposite. I'm not saying we should be littering, you know, littering their environment, but I'm saying overprotection um, has costs and it, it changes expectations in ways that can end up harming the very people we're hoping to help. I think that that's a good jumping off point for the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because one of the things that you say, oh, oh, just to turn to some larger political things, um, There's a point in the book where you're talking about Martin Luther King and you're talking about a way to kind of win people over. And uh, this is what you write. This is the way to win hearts, minds and votes. You must appeal to the elephant, which you call intuitive and emotional processes, as well as the rider, which is reasoning. Martin Luther King understood this. Instead of shaming or demonizing Martin Luther King, and you're talking about a couple other people too, instead of shaming or demonizing their opponents, they humanized them and then relentlessly appealed to their humanity. I guess the paradox or the contradiction here I see, and maybe you see it differently, is that it seems like what you're saying here is that if sort of liberal people, I don't just mean like Democrats, but sort of traditionally liberal people want to appeal to kind of the average American or to to voters, that they, they kind of must appeal to their good side. They shouldn't demonize them. They shouldn't shame them. They shouldn't tell them that they're all racist or whatever these things that we hear about why Trump voters are going one way or so, something like that. It seems like there's a little contradiction there because when we're talking about college students, we're saying, why can't these people toughen up? Why can't they hear the real truth? Isn't it good for them to to hear kind of, you know, what we perceive as honesty? And And in this case, it seems like you're kind of saying, no, the way to win people over is actually to kind of tiptoe a little bit. Is there is there a contradiction there? 
So, yeah, so it's two separate psychological issues. On the issue of anti-fragility, you're right that we think that in general overprotection is bad. But the issue here, the psychology behind great untruth number three, which is life is a battle between good people and evil people, the psychology there is the basic psychology of tribalism, which is the Bedouin proverb, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me, my brother, and cousin against the stranger. So that's our basic tribal psychology. And what Martin Luther King and, and Paul E. Murray, we have wonderful quotes from a number of civil rights leaders, what they understood is if you start by using a vocabulary of brothers and sisters, they used a lot of Christian language, they used a lot of, of American, uh, uh, American traditional terms. If you activate what you have in common first, and then you make your case that some of our brothers and sisters are being denied equal dignity. They're being denied equal access to the fruits of, of their labor and of American society. That is a psychologically effective way to make the case. Whereas what we argue in, in chapter three um, is identity politics is not bad. You have to have a politics of identity. Um, but you can have an identity politics based on common humanity which is what we say works, um, or you can have one based on common enemy, which is where you try to unite people in hatred of, of, a, of a, let's say, a dominant group. That might feel good, and there may be some truth to it, um, but that is a, a way to, it is not an effective way to bring about change within, especially within an institution like a university, which really, really wants to work with you. It seemed effective in winning the last election, though. That's right. So there are times when there are times when if you if you if the goal is to get out the vote and crush the other side, there are times in national politics, there are times in opposing racial injustice in the criminal justice system, um, when very forceful methods are all that will work. But if you have an institution like a university, our argument is that a lot of the strategies are backfiring, not just within the university, but my God, are they providing material that right-wing news sites use to stir up anger, outrage, and disgust against universities and against the left. There's a kind of an expressive politics which feels good and which plays into right-wing narratives about universities, but it doesn't get the job done. Right. I, I guess maybe maybe this just to go back to where we started a little bit, that if if these types of stories are driving right wing people into paroxysms of rage and getting them to support people like Donald Trump, it does seem like then we can make somewhat of an argument that words do have an impact on people, right? That um, things that people oh, they certainly do. Yeah. That things people perceive as hurtful can get them to vote for authoritarians or can get them to do really, really, really awful things, which makes me sort of, you know, go back to where we started about maybe we should be worried about the fragility of people because words really can hurt. So there's, there's the argument that is debated on campus is our words of violence. So nobody doubts that words can hurt. Uh, anybody who's ever been broken up with by, by the person they love knows that words can hurt sharper than knives. Um, the question on campus is, should we consider words that are hurtful to be violence? And that is a line that no democratic society should cross. Because as soon as you label your opponent's words as violence, that entitles your side to use violence. And as soon as your side uses violence, research and common sense show you lose. Especially in an age of smartphones, you lose. Videos of your side being violent get played all over the place. Boy, did they energize the other side. There's research showing that violent protest, at least in the American context, is less effective than nonviolent protest. 
So yeah, words can hurt, but they're not violence. Wait, wait, sorry. I, I, I missed the leap there. Maybe I just didn't hear you. That You said that words or violence is a silly idea, which I agree is a, uh, is, a, is a very problematic idea. But then you said that using violence is bad politically. What's the connection between those two things? For your side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so protests, uh, so protests in the public square, protests to, to achieve a specific end um, are certainly effective. Um, uh, and it's the, the question is, um, if you think about, if you think about the thing you're protesting against, if you think about words spoken by your opponents as violence, that might license people on your side to use violence. So just in a lot of ways, uh, and many others have made this case, and Mark Lilla, I think, has made it very, very powerfully. In a lot of ways, if you take people on your side and you put them in a community where they face very little contradiction, where they can talk among themselves and they don't learn to understand the other side, this is a really, really bad thing to do for your side. And so uh, many of our elite universities have become like this. Um, uh, they prepare students not for effective action in the world, rather they, pra they give them good practice in call-out culture, in shaming others, and in manifesting their virtue to each other. Again, it's a recipe for political impotence and bad mental health. Well, just to talk about the political impotence, you mentioned Mark Lilla, you also mentioned him in the book, and he also mentions Martin Luther King. The last year that this data is available, which is 1966, the Gallup poll, Martin Luther King putting forward all these political views had an approval rating of 32% and a disapproval rating among Americans of 63%. How do we understand that, given the type of politics he was preaching? Well, what little I, I know of the history is that he took a plunge in the polls. He was he was working on various economic issues that were not powerful. So I don't I don't know how to track the polls, and I would not say that um, protests should only use things that poll well in the moment. Um, but I think the we have enough examples, um, and certainly we have enough people like Nelson Mandela um, and others um, taking the long view and saying, in the long run, you're going to win. Uh, you're going to win with love and dignity, um, not by demonizing your opponents. Well, right. But Nelson Mandela was also the head of what we would consider a terrorist group in terms of a group that carried out terrorist actions um, for a political cause that I'm sure both of us think was uh, in the long run a good one. But the African mm -hmm. National Congress was was not just a peaceful group. No, that's right. And again, I don't know the history to know whether the Afri whether the violent methods were effective or would have been effective, um, or whether it was ultimately uh, the more the, the the more inclusive appeal that Mandela made after he got out from prison. I mean, I remember I remember um, watching him and watching those early speeches and just the thrill of of someone coming out from prison and preaching forgiveness, preaching working together. Uh, I thought that was incredibly powerful, and in the long run, it seems to have worked. Well, let me just ask you this then. I mean, do you think that there's something about, uh, and I'm not trying to be glib asking this question, that the left has a more responsibility or for practical reasons more need to appeal to these things than the right, which has uh, seemed certainly in the last few years to be able to win with uh, precisely the opposite of what you're putting forward as an effective strategy to win hearts and minds? My own work on moral psychology, I began it in 2004 after John Kerry lost. I, I thought that the Democrats just 
repeatedly showed they didn't know how to talk about American morality. They didn't know how to appeal to voters. And so I, I converted my research from cultural psychology, where I was looking at how nations differ, to uh, political psychology, specifically in order to help the Democrats be more effective. Um, and so um, I think just you can look at this in many ways. If you just look at it pragmatically, I think it always pays to understand your opponents. It always pays to know what their sacred issues are, what are their hot buttons, to avoid pressing those. Um, it, no, it, it pays to, to underst understand the truth. And um, over and over again, we see that if you take people and you put them together in groups where they can only talk to each other, they are not able to understand the truth. They end up making ineffective appeals and bad policies. So uh, I think, and this is what certainly motivated Mark Lilla, is the frustration of seeing Democrats make what many of us think are mistakes. And what, uh, there's a quote from Steve Bannon, I forget the exact quote, but he says, the more Democrats talk about, about race and identity politics, we win. Um, so uh, there certainly is, it certainly is easy to trigger an authoritarian reaction, an authoritarian alarm in voters. And uh, here I'm drawing on the work of Karen Stenner, a wonderful political scientist in Australia, who put her finger on in her 2004 book, The Authoritarian Dynamic. Democrats need to understand the authoritarian dynamic, stop playing into it. And I think more the more inclusive form of identity politics shuts that down. It turns off the authoritarian alarm. And the common enemy form is the most precise way to trigger it. Why did eight years of Obama not shut that down? Well, eight years of Obama, um, the, let's see, when you say shut it down, you mean why was, didn't America change completely? No, I, I thought you just, I thought you used the phrase shut it down just now to say that Democrats can sort of try to shut down this politics, shut down right-wing authoritarianism by not using identity politics by appealing to common humanity and so on. It seems like we had a president for eight years who did not spend his time appealing to identity politics and did speak to our common humanity uh, in very... Uh, oh, no, that's right. He did. Yeah. Doesn't seem to have avoided uh, the, the rise of uh, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. No, because the, so the authoritarian dynamic is, um, is a preparedness or a, it's a reactivity in the minds of about 20 to 30% of the population is what Stenner finds. And she finds the same thing in, in European democracies. Um, and so Obama was great at appealing. I mean, he was just brilliant, especially in his first campaign, at appealing to uh, American values, American traditions, the founding fathers. So he did turn it off. Now, you, you can't make the button disappear. You can't remove it from the minds of the 30% or so who have it. Um, but Obama did not press the alarm, and in return, he won majorities in both in both elections. Um, now, obviously, Clinton won a majority of the national vote, but you know, against Donald Trump, it should have been a landslide. And she, in many ways, um, I mean, she was complicated, and she made a number of different appeals. But a lot of what she did, she did play up identity politics much more than Obama did, and the right-wing media was able to uh, exploit that and exaggerate it so that they did get very high voter turnout on their side, even without much of a ground game. They didn't, they didn't have a big operation. Yeah. But I mean, look, Donald Trump got 46 percent of the vote, which in a two party system is about as low as you're ever going to get. So you could say maybe without Hillary Clinton's appeals to identity politics, he would have gotten 45 percent or 44 and a half percent. But Donald Trump also won the Republican nomination, you know, around the same time Hillary Clinton did and it already conquered the Republican mm. Party. I, I, I guess I'm just the rise of Donald Trump, the rise of right wing authoritarianism. I just. To, to ascribe it to a couple speeches Hillary Clinton made. Um, oh, no, no, I'm not, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not ascribing the rise of it to Clinton's speeches. I'm just saying that 
um, I think Clinton played it in a way that left her open to it made it very it made it very easy for operatives on the other on the other side. But no, she didn't cause that. She didn't cause that to happen. Let me ask you. You mentioned briefly uh, that you wanted you were interested after the after the Kerry election in writing about why Democrats kind of can't um, appeal to. Moral values. Is that what you said? What was the phrase you used a couple of minutes ago? Yeah, yeah. No, I used to write, I wrote all kinds of memos and tried to get Democrats to read them about how to, you know, how Democrats can speak to American values. And I, I never really got very, you know, I not, didn't get anybody to read them. But later up, but, you know, that, those ideas turned into the righteous mind. I was reading an old uh, piece you wrote for The Guardian in 2012. And this is one thing you wrote. On matters relating to group loyalty, respect for authority, and sanctity, which you define as treating things as sacred and untouchable, not only in the context of religion, it sometimes seems that liberals lack the moral taste buds, or at least their moral cuisine makes less use of them. For example, according to our data, if you want to hire someone to criticize your nation on a radio show in another nation, give the finger to your boss, or sign a piece of paper stating one's willingness to sell his soul, you can save a lot of money by posting a sign, conservatives need not apply. Mm-hmm. It just seems to me that we need to update this a little bit for the age of Donald Trump, and I'm curious how you think we need to update it. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, so one thing I learned from from Karen Stenner's wonderful book, The Authoritarian Dynamic, is that there are really four different psychological types out there in our political landscape. Uh, there are the progressives. Um, uh, there are the the status quo conservatives, who are the classic Burkean conservatives, like George H. W. Bush wouldn't be prudent. Um, then there are the libertarians, the sort of pro-business uh, uh, folks, and then there are the authoritarians. Now, Ronald Reagan's coalition uh, was the status quo conservatives uh, and the libertarians or business uh, uh, conservatives uh, in the lead, and then the authoritarians went along for the ride. They had nowhere else to go, and that was the, the dominant coalition for a couple of decades. In the age of Trump, what has happened is that for the first time, certainly in the last, maybe since the age of Jackson, I don't know, but for the first time in a very long time, the authoritarians are actually in the lead. And so uh, Bannon and Stephen Miller and the the horrible stuff that they're doing to children at the border, I mean, stuff that would be, that is shocking and horrible to many of the status quo conservatives and and the conservative intellectuals. Um, So yes, I agree. The Republican Party, uh, I think, has lost its mind um, in that it has been taken over by authoritarians and pandering to them. Um, So yes, many of the things that I wrote in The Righteous Mind were about the old uh, debate between sort of the Mitt Romney, you know, versus Barack Obama. uh, And it's very different for the age of Trump. Yes. Well, but I I guess my question, and I I don't have an answer to this, I wish I did, was, do we think that the Republican Party has changed in some fundamental way? Or do we think that, you alluded to this earlier, this was always there and um, our analysis of it you know, a few decades ago or a decade ago was was actually wrong at the time. Yeah. So the the way that I the way that I think about things is you you look at you look at different psychological types or personality types, and then you look at political parties and you look at the ways that political operatives and intellectuals and journalists and others have connected issues to different voting blocks and 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 um, and psychological types, and yeah, that certainly shifts. Parties change over time. Our basic psychology doesn't change. Human psychology doesn't really change. Uh, but parties are always uh, in flux. They're always changing. And I think the Republican Party has changed in ways that I personally think are are hideous. Frankly, um, they've been affected by again. I'm not. This is beyond my expertise. But you know, the the media system, Fox News, has an effect on on the Republican side 
that is unlike anything that happens on the Democratic side. There are a whole variety of reasons why the Republican Party has changed from the party of George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan um, to the party of Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Right. I guess what's frustrating um, about trying to figure this out, at least for me, is that, you know, when I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a sense of Democrats need to learn to speak to family values. They need to understand patriotism. Yeah. They need to understand respect for law enforcement and the military. And if they don't do these things, they're not going to win as many elections as they should. And then you have a guy mm -hmm. come along who has no respect for family values, who attacks law enforcement agencies basically every day, who makes fun of POWs, who yep. tells his voters he's smarter than them and exhibits every form of elite condescension. Um, that you could imagine, or almost all of them. And now it's sort of, well, now it's Democrats need to learn to do this, or they're never going to win the, you know, the undecided white voter, basically. And so I, I guess what I'm wondering is it just, it makes me kind of wary of any analysis that says, this is what liberals are doing wrong today to not win over the Trump voter. I see. I see. Well, first of all, on, on Trump, um, yes, uh, um, he is an incredible hypocrite, and um, if voters were consistent in their values, they would uh, conservatives and Republicans would turn him out. Um, but a, a really important change in our politics has happened over the last ten or fifteen years. Political scientists call it negative partisanship, uh, in which it used to be that you would vote for a candidate primarily because you liked the candidate. And sometime in the last ten to fifteen years, um, we shifted to voting primarily because we hate. Uh, the other candidate. And so Donald Trump, many have observed, Donald Trump doesn't have to deliver on promises. He doesn't have to be consistent. All he has to do is, I'm the I'm the one who, who hates the people that you hate. Uh, and he's very good at hating uh, people on the left and hating Hillary Clinton and hating the uh, the coastal elites like you and me. Um, so it is it is a uh, it is an ugly and unfortunate change in our politics that we are so deep into negative partisanship that the Republicans elected an incredible hypocrite like Donald Trump. Jonathan Haidt is the co-author with Greg Lukianoff of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. The book is available right now everywhere you can buy books. John, thank you so much for, uh, for doing this with me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Isaac. I did too. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs, and our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley, and thanks also to Laura Flynn for extra help recording in San Francisco. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me at iChotner on Twitter for more information about the show. Laura Flynn for extra help recording in San Francisco. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me at iChotner on Twitter for more information about the show.